This episode has been sponsored by MapHook. Welcome to the Gray Area, where I dispense advice and give interviews on relationships between gamers. My name is Genesee Gray, and this is the 26th episode in a weekly series called An Interview Without Wind. Last week's episode was a discussion with Rabbit on his blog and podcast, The Journal of a Homeless Gamer. Please visit www.genesee.com to add to the forum discussion on that topic and to tell me your story. Today is Thursday, July 14th, and today I speak with Chris Park, indie developer and founder of Arkin Games, and Eric Johnson, games journalist and developer for Arkin Games as well. Welcome to the show, guys. Hi. Before we get started, let's do news of the week. News of the week. Fallout Las Vegas Old World Blues comes out the 19th for the Xbox. Also, Captain America Super Soldier for PS3, Wii, Xbox, and DS comes out the same day. And the Smurfs Dance Party also comes out for all platforms. <laughs> letting you know. Uh, my gaming news, I've been playing Risen and Divinity 2 The Dragon Knight Saga. Both are really fun uh, RP games that are kind of similar to the Elder Scrolls Oblivion, which I'm also playing. Uh, although Divinity, I can turn into a Dragon Knight and fight as a beast or a human, so that's kind of extra fun. Guys, it's your turn. What's your news of the week? Let's start with Chris. My news of the week is uh, Dungeons, and uh, the latest game I'm working on uh, It's a big refactoring with uh, how we're organizing a lot of the procedural game world, and dungeons are a big part of that, so that uh, is exciting. Okay. How about you, Eric? Um, one of my favorite Xbox Live indie games, uh, Cthulhu Saves the World, along with Breath of Death <laughs> 7, uh, has uh, just hit Steam um, PC uh, by uh, Robert Boyd of the Boyd Games. Um, it's a you know really excellent throwback kind of JRPG experience. Think like Final Fantasy IV, um, Dragon's Quest kind of stuff like that, and um, they they're bringing a, a three dollar pack for two games that are just fantastic. It's like parody style JRPG that just making fun of all of the sort of the the ridiculousness of the genre and their own sort of stories, as well as so they're bringing um, 21st century options to a 20th century kind of game, which I think is great. Um, you have the ability to fight all the battles once you enter a dungeon right away and just clear them right then and there. And then, even though they're random battles, you take care of them there. You can fight 50 of them in a row, and then the dungeon's done, and you can explore everywhere. I prefer that much more to just running around and constantly getting snagged into those random battles and stuff. So those are kind of cool features they've added. Anyway, $3, it's like 10% off, so that's like, what, like 260 now or something for the next week. Definitely check it out if you have a PC I've been meaning to get that, and I was really jealous when I saw it on your Twitter saying that you were playing it. Uh, yeah, it did look yeah. really fun. I, I looked at the uh, YouTube video of that, and, and I have a website that I go to um, actually called Jaluthu Girl, a person who makes like little knitted Jaluthus that you can buy, <laughs> and she was going on about it too, so it was really neat. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's yeah, they're, the, Robert Boyd really has put a lot of... Um, ton of effort into it and actually these are the enhanced versions um he's adding a patch for the xbox live indie game as well so no one gets left out very cool very cool developer so nice that's clever i really like that with the 
updating that sort of genre. Usually you see it as just a pure throwback, which is well, okay, but that gets the gameplay can feel archaic. Yeah, and not to get stuck. <laughs> yeah, not to get stuck on this, Chris, but they actually created a new campaign out of the same um, kind of the same areas that you would see in the first game, but it's new people and new dialogue, and I've never seen anyone do that before, you know. So I thought that was really cool too. Um, was basically create a new campaign from the campaign that was already built um in a, in a jrpg sort of setting i guess and, and and stuff so it's not so it's like running through the game twice with a completely different um situation almost like an alternate universe it's kind of neat nice nice well eric you've told us about your gaming experience lately which is kind of my next question so i'm going to ask chris uh what games are you playing other than obviously your own and if you have a go-to kind of game when you're bored to, that you kind of take out to entertain yourself what would that be Oh, goodness. Let's see. I mean, there's been a lot of things lately. A lot of I've been playing a lot of iPhone games recently. Just got into words with friends of all things. Oh, I play that. uh, Oh, yeah. That's, (laughs) you know, uh, I probably have eight of those waiting for a turn at the moment. And uh, I've been playing a lot of Angry Birds and Angry Birds Rio. I had kind of missed out on that a little bit. I've had it for like a year, but never really played it. And uh, I just picked it up, too. So, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, I just beat Rio, and so I was going back to the original Angry Birds, and so it's those are really good. I, I've been finding that uh, lately I've been playing a lot of uh, uh, iPhone games more so than uh, PC games and stuff, just because of the lack of time. The other one I've been playing though is Portal Two. That's awesome too. So. Yes, I have that, and I've been hanging on to it, and haven't even cracked the case yet. Oh, it's I mean, so I just keep funny! Looking at it, <laughs> it's so funny. I'm not quite through with it, but I'm kind of savoring it. My wife and I are playing through it together and just swapping off on the single player part, and then we're looking forward to the co-op too. So. Ah, excellent! Yeah. Nice. I'm thinking about the uh, the apps you were talking about that you play, and hanging with friends is also very similar to yeah, um, yeah, yeah, to that. So if you end up kind of getting like waiting around for people to do stuff. I, I kind of got sucked into hanging with friends. I don't like it as much as words with friends, but it's something else to kind of wait while you're waiting for, for the, friends to think of a good word. <laughs> for the it's, ignorant, that's that's Hangman with yes, uh, friends. Yeah, Hangman. Yeah. It's kind of also sort of Scrabble. Man, that one makes me want to, you know, just <laughs> strangle myself a lot of the time, though, because it's so difficult, and I wind up, you know, you know that one... You know, with Scrabble, if you don't think of the right word, whatever, you just, you think of the best one you can. But there is a concrete answer in Hanging with Friends. There is a specific word that is right there. I feel like I should get it every time, and I don't. And if you don't get it, your little character falls into the lava and dies, which is quite a consequence for not thinking of, you know, the proper noun for that. Yeah. I'm in a lava streak with that with my wife. (laughs) Nice. Uh, Chris, I read that you were a gamer from age three. Wow, uh, with the Atari Twenty Six Hundred. Oh yeah. Yeah, I had an Atari ST myself, so I kind of feel that. Uh, when did you decide to make gaming a lifestyle? I don't know that I ever really thought about it. It's just uh, something I always did. Um, my parents played on the Atari, and uh, they had a lot of games for that. Um, then they're the ones that got a. I had been begging for a regular Nintendo for a while. Um, but then they're the ones that got it, and they're like, okay, this is a family thing. We're going to play Mario in this room, and then you can play stuff over here in this other room. We'll wheel it back and forth. And, you know, that lasted no time at all. It quit <laughs> my, my system. But, <laughs> uh, you know, the um, 
So, you know, there's a lot of family influence. And I mean, that's still what my family does when we get together. We don't play video games, um, but we play uh, card games and board games and so forth every time we get together. And, um, you know, that's just kind of how I was brought up, I guess. And uh, I was always the most into them of anybody in the family. So, uh, uh-huh. you know, making my own campaigns for whatever game that we were all playing or being the dungeon master or doing whatever else, it was kind of a natural segue into, oh, I'm going to do level design and I'm going to do, you know, mods for this and that. And I just, I did that all my life and never, ever, ever once thought of it as a career. It's like, do you want to be, you know, the football quarterback or something? It's like, haha, that's nice, you know. But uh, then it was just like three, 2008, so I guess three years ago now, suddenly like August 2008, I'm like, wait a second, I could do this for a living. Oh my God. (laughs) So then (laughs) that was like, okay, well, I guess I'll give that a shot. And, uh, yeah, I guess it was another year later I was doing it full time. So that was kind of a funny thing to realize belatedly. (laughs) My family's kind of like that too, in that they like dominoes and sorry and things like that. You're probably one of those people that like Axis and Allies, don't you? I haven't played that one. I've, I've wanted to. We play Descent, and we play we play a lot of the various ones that are card games as well that are real lightweight. So we like Turn the Tide and Exactica is a real favorite. And okay. Um, for the so, record, for the record, I'm pretty shocked that Chris hasn't played Axis and Allies either. So I mean, that's, <laughs> well, that, we play Starfleet Battles, a lot mm. of risk variants and so forth. And we play Settlers of Catan, and so it's not. You know, I don't know. My dad and I are the only ones that are really into RTS games out of the core group that we play with. So my dad and I and my uncle will play. That's the history. We always played real-time strategy games together online while everybody else did whatever else. And uh, we don't drag that into our board game sessions. So I, I don't think Axis and Allies would go over well with my mom. But she likes Descent and, you know, really complicated stuff. Princess of Florence and whatever else. But the... Okay. The, we get into risk, and she's kind of like, eh. <laughs> Much. All right. Uh, Eric, I understand you're originally doing PR for the company. How did you transition into gaming development from there? Um, I guess, you know, going back to, to that idea of when you're talking about, you know, how did you get into gaming in the first place and stuff, I actually had a little bit of a fallout with gaming sort of in my in my late teens, early 20s. Um, I'm, I'm sure we've all had it if, if you've gone through it, which is just like, do I like video games anymore? Are video games for me anymore at this age? Um, some people don't because they're so involved with it. Um, <laughs> like, like Chris and stuff. It's been a party, you, know, it's a, you just described it as a family affair. That's never been the case for my family. I mean, nobody in my family likes video games, period. I mean, there's just no interest in it. Um, so, so, and I think that that's probably more common for, for a lot of gamers, but I mean, I, I love hearing that it's, there's there's this family of gamers out there somewhere, Chris. That's really cool because that that was not the case for me growing up. I was always begging for these consoles, and they were just like, "It's a money sink" and things like that. So I'm like, "Please, please, please." Um, but um, moving forward, after the whole sort of you know questioning whether or not I liked gaming anymore, kind of searching around, f- trying to find uh, what I liked, I, I actually that's when I kind of found found indie gaming, sort of fell into it, um, and uh, and got into the sort of the writing and the media of it. And it basically opened my eyes uh, to the whole um, corner of the industry and how it works and how it's how it wor- how it works much differently than anywhere um, any other part of the industry, which is uh, which was key to me sort of being reinvigorated and and wanting to get back into it, um, both in playing the games and then finding out about the people behind it. 
Um, so that's sort of when I when we started DIY Gamer in two thousand nine. That was that, which is an indie games blog. Um, that was that idea was to find the games and the people who are making these games that nobody else knew about and share them with people because there's there we there, it just came to a point a couple of years ago where everyone realized, hey, you don't have to be super famous or you don't have to be super super notable to make a great game. And uh, I'm, I'm I know a lot of developers already believe that for decades, but it's, I mean, it was a general realization by the public, I think, over the last couple of years that, you know, these smaller developer teams can make really, really fun experiences. So uh, from there, um, as you know, you know, journalism and games especially can not, is not necessarily that financially lucrative. Um, I had just recently had a baby um, with my wife uh, who she, she just turned one. Um, I, I know there's other people. People have people have babies with other people in life. Thanks for um, the yeah. yeah, I mean, well, I wanted to throw throw them throw them both in there. I wasn't gonna say uh, anything. No, either way. Um, but uh, anyway, um, wife or no, no wife, having a kid is still a huge responsibility and a huge financial undertaking. So, um, games journalism just wasn't gonna cut it. I had a choice to either continue to pursue deeper into the industry or go somewhere else. And, um, you know, I, that's, we had, we had Chris on in a similar podcast for DIY gamer, a couple, like, I think maybe over a year ago now or close to a year now. And, uh, we had a long conversation then about potentially creating a job in the indie space that hasn't really been there before in the PR marketing department, because sort of a nasty word, indie gamers or indie developers don't have a whole lot of money for it. And, uh, so, so I just kind of wanted to get sort of, advice on viability for it and we were touching base kind of over the next six months and then he kind of had a game getting ready to go which turned out to be a valley without wind in um in january and he brought me on for for um a short amount of time for a few hours a week and uh the game got more intensive i took on some of the developer work and the rest is kind of history on that is that how you met when you got together to ask him about that Actually, we met um, prior to that. I uh, when I started, some, one of the things I did in, when I was doing uh, games reporting and games journalism and blogging and all that was I uh, I found that nobody covered patch notes that well. Um, so I would cover. I mean, it was a boring job, but I someone had to do it, right? And uh, so I covered a lot of the patches that came out. And uh, I noticed this one game, which would come up with a patch like every single day, <laughs> and it was called AI War uh, Fleet Command. And it was by these guys named named Arkin Games, and I was like, these guys are insane. They release a patch or a beta patch for this game literally every 18 hours or something, something <laughs> like that. At one point in time, it was it was coming out something between every 18 and 36 hours. There was a new patch for the game. So um, eventually, yeah. after just kind of covering the patches for a while, I, I had to kind of figure out, you know, what are you guys doing over there? What you know, what's what's the you know what what's the point of all these releases and stuff? And and um, I you know I think Chris and I had a lengthy text interview. Um, prior to that podcast on For Gaming Dead, and that's when we kind of really got to know each other from there. Excellent. Uh, tell me about the founding of Arkin Games. It seems like a small company to me. How many work there currently? Uh, at the moment, we've got uh, myself, uh, Keith Lamothe, who does uh, programming and game design. Uh, he and I are basically co-designing A Valley Without Wind. He's roughly half-time at the moment. Uh, I'm obviously full-time. Uh, we also have Pablo Vega, who is full, is full time, and he does uh, music, sound and fan. music. Yeah. Exactly, yeah, he's awesome. He's awesome. He's been uh, doing a lot of sound effects stuff recently, but uh, he just got married uh, recently as well. So he's just to his wife, actually. So it was, <laughs> it was also good to know. That's right. <laughs> um, and uh, so it's right now it's actually the four of us. Um, 
In the past, we've had uh, Philippe Chabot, who did the art for uh, Tidalis, and he also did the art for uh, the Zenith Remnant and AI War 2.0 and uh, some other stuff like that. And uh, he's actually doing a little bit of contract art for us on A Valley Without Wind, and I'm sure we'll work together more in the future too, but right now, working on mostly different things. And... Um, and then Lars Bull was the lead designer on Tidalis. He's a good friend of mine, uh, also a game designer that I've known since hmm, 1999, I guess. Um, he was 12 and I was 16 when we met. So, oh. uh, <laughs> uh, so that's been quite a while. And we were both designing games at that point, hobbyist stuff at that point. And um, so he's always been a guy that uh, that I would show my designs to and get feedback on, and then. Uh, He's done some various stuff from uh, for ARC, including help localize AI War when we originally were doing that. And uh, uh, then, obviously, he was the lead designer on Tide Alice, so he had an enormous role in that. And he still helps out with support and answering questions on some of those puzzles that he did for Tide Alice. Just absolutely kicked my butt. So I'm like, I'll have to get Lars. He'll tell you how to beat that one if there's a player that's stuck. Because I'm <laughs> like, you know, I don't remember and I don't, I couldn't figure it out. So he'll help. He'll give you the hints you need. <laughs> With such so. a tight-knit group, it sounds like uh, it's probably a lot different than a lot of the larger gaming companies. Do you find that you get friendships out of that? Or is it still more of a professional kind of get your work done and leave area? Oh. It's definitely friendships and all that. I mean, uh, Pablo and his wife uh, and I and my wife get together some. I mean, we, we used to more before uh, my wife and I had our son about a year ago. And that was that kind of put the kibosh on some social stuff. We used to get together and play like rock band or whatever and <laughs> or go bowling and things like that. And, uh, um, you know, Keith and I uh, met he was actually a fan of AI War and was active in our forums. And uh, I'd known him since uh, June of 2009. And we, he and I had talked about um, professional coding for business software because that was what my background was in for about nine years before I got into gaming software. And uh, that's what he he does for his other job as well. And um, so we talked about that sort of thing when I mentioned, you know, I'm probably going to need to hire another programmer sometime soon. But, you know, really, you know, I remarked on the forum something about that. I'm not even thinking about anything now. He's like, just, you know, if you want one, then, you know, consider me, please. And we got to talking and it's like, well, OK, actually, you're hired. And and, you know, we've we've been good friends since. But, you know, it's uh, it's funny because like, you know, Pablo one point had some trouble with his car or something and so then he and Keith were you know talking and and that was really nice and they, they got to be you know friends through talking through stuff like that and it's really nice because when you're an indie developer sometimes what you find is that what you've got is an endless string of, of contractors and uh, you're kind of the hub they they all talk to you none of them talk to each other nobody's in the same room I don't Pablo and I are the only ones that are even in the same state. So uh, mm -hmm. it's, uh, you know, it's very tempting, I think, for them to to do that. But I try and always get people to kind of cross-talk and work together on different things. Like Eric and Keith are working together more directly on the story with A Valley Without Wind, and I kind of stay out of that. But there's things that Eric and I work on and, you know, back and forth all around. And we try and, uh, you know, make sure that everybody can comment on whatever anybody else is doing because, you know, we need that sort of, uh, you know, early feedback from one another. And um, 
So that that even makes it, I guess, a little bit different than some indie shops. You get some indie shops that they're all in the same place. They know each other. They're probably friends first. They found the thing together, and then there's these great friendships that are there, and they persist or run into trouble, depending, <laughs> and yeah. uh, you know how that can go. But uh, this is kind of a unique, I guess, because uh, none of us really knew each other before Arkin was a thing. Pablo and I. Pablo was my sister's friend. They went to uh, college together. And uh, when I was looking for a composer, my sister is an opera singer. And so I was asking her if she knew anybody. And she was like, Pablo, of course. And so I was really lucky to uh, to meet him that way. So Let's move to AI War. Chris, I understand that AI War Fleet Command, which is an RTS, was Arkin's first game, and I noticed you were listed there really kind of as a one-man operation uh, with Pablo Vega, which we've talked about a little bit a few minutes ago. And the music in the game is, to me, pretty much as important as the visual when I play. That That's what keeps drawing me back to like the World of Warcrafts and things like that, and he did a really good with that ethereal sound in AI War. Um, Take me to the time when you were creating that, and did you have an office and employees then? No, no, and we don't actually have an office now because I mean, we, uh, <laughs> you know, I work out of my home office. Uh, I had been telecommuting with my prior job anyhow, and so that was an easy transition to make. Um, <laughs> and uh, Pablo has his own uh, music studio at his house that uh, he's got with a little recording light and everything, so that people don't come in and mess mess them oh. up and all that. So yeah, we uh, we all work out of our homes. And um, originally, when I started working on AI War, it was a side project that I started working on because I was frustrated with this other game that I was making called Alden Ridge. I'd gotten to this point; it was uh, well, anyway, I'd gotten to this point where I was kind of stuck. So I decided to work on. Uh, it, at the same time, I was frustrated with. Uh, not having a good RTS to play that met all my criteria. Um, my dad, my uncle, myself, and one of my uncle's colleagues, we've been playing roughly weekly um, RTS games since eh, 1998, 1999, something like that. We started with uh, Age of Empires, the original one, and then have gone up through the ranks of Age of Empires and Empire Earth and Rise of Nations and you know all those various ones. Mm -hmm. And um, we always want to play co-op. We don't play competitively at all. We want to play co-op. And so uh, the game is only as good as the AI that we're playing against. And uh, we'd always hit the point where once we learned how to really play the game and we're really good at it, which playing you know once a week or so usually takes 6 to, to 12 months, we were pretty well done. Because <laughs> we could then just steamroll the AI even if we played like you know four on four, or, you know, whatever it was that we would do. And... Uh, so it's kind of like, well, okay, you know, I'd really like to write AI for some of these things, but the AI that, uh, you know, you can't always do that. And with the few that it could, the AI code is this humongous mass of stuff that you have to try and understand somebody else's code, which is not my favorite thing to do. I'd rather just write my own and, and so forth. So it's like, well, I'll write a, a game that focuses on AI and just started kind of calling it AI War. And then it was like, okay, well, uh, I guess we'll keep that name actually after we've been calling it that for like seven months and for a good long while we wouldn't have any music or sound or anything so it's just me developing, developing it and then my dad and uncle and myself and uh, my uncle's friend w would uh, 
would play once a week or so, and they'd have lots of feedback, and we'd talk about what was fun or what wasn't, and the game drastically altered as we went, and yada, yada, yada. And I was you know, doing this in my spare time after the day job. And um, then after, uh, it was March, so I guess it was four months of development. I was like, okay, it's, this is a real thing. I need to start thinking about you know, uh, music. I'd already done all the sound through free sources like SoundSnap and stuff. And, uh, I mean, you know, Pablo later redid it all, but uh, that was after 1.0 anyway. Uh, so I got Pablo in there to do uh, the music, and, uh, you know, he was just really cool about, you know, he came over, and we were looking at the game and stuff, and he was, uh, you know, sits down at the piano, and he starts, like, just off the top of his head, laying out some melodies that he's that are just, like, coming to him. And he's just like, oh, my God, I can't believe you can do that, you know, and... Mm -hmm. And uh, so that was how the, the partnership came. So it was just him and me, and he he only did the music, you know, pre-1.0. Later on, he came back and redid all the sound much better than what had been done before. And, uh, you know, then it grew. Then we added, you know, the next one to be added was Phil uh, to do the redo, a lot of the art, because all the art had been from free sources or a few things that I'd cooked up uh, in pixel art before I realized, oh, you know, this hobby of 3D art that I have, that I've had for a decade, I could use that in games, too. But, um, so, it was very small. Let's talk about the AI that you were speaking about a few minutes ago. Um, that In that game, it got a lot of notice, as it, I guess it was created differently than most games who have kind of a strategic tier approach. Can you share how you came up with asymmetrical AI a little bit further, other than just the games that you were kind of playing now that frustrated you? And... And what does that mean for us non-developers, asymmetrical AI? <laughs> well, the AI war really starts with a different premise than any other RTS game that I can think of. Um, it starts with the premise of David and Goliath. And this is not how I started programming AI war, but it was kind of an epiphany I had after we'd been playing with it for a long time. And I was like, you know, this feels like every other RTS game. Why isn't this fun? I was like, I want to feel like, if you've ever read the book Ender's Game, it's my favorite book. You know, yes. Ender's, Ender's fighting the buggers, right? And he's, he's in space and he's fighting these aliens. He's always outnumbered. Every battle, he's outnumbered, but he's outsmarting them with smaller forces and just eviscerating them. You know, it's their home planet, and it's just ridiculously outnumbered. And, you know, the gate is down, all that sort of stuff. So, I mean, we have warp gates in, in AI War, which gets a lot of the gate is down jokes, which I'm happy to have, you know. And so, at any rate, that sort of scenario of you're David and fighting this Goliath really you don't see in RTS games because they all want to be chess. You know, they all want to be StarCraft. They're, they're saying, let's take two humans and pit them against one another in an equal contest of wills. Equal, equal, equal. It must be equal. This is a sport. It's like football or StarCraft or whatever. You know, this is equal. That's really important. And the concept of AI war is, no, let's have the human versus the AI, and let's make it unequal. The AI starts out with, depending on the size of the map you play, they may have upwards of 10,000 ships, and you start with like six. And um, the most you can ever build is a couple of thousand yourself. I mean, maybe the max, like six or 7,000, and the AI can get up to close to 100,000. This is all in real time, by the way. Oh. And, <laughs> and, um, that would foster some creativity. 
Yeah. So that that really lets a whole different uh, it's a whole different premise. So you get to design it the whole different way. So it's kind of like if I like to use the example of Mario Brothers. Um, if if you had one opponent in Mario Brothers and it was Shadow Mario and Shadow Mario, you know, he's he's like Mario, but he's Shadow. Mm -hmm. That's it. He does everything that you do. That's it. If he was your only opponent, how interesting is that? You know what I mean? You both jump and you try and jump on each other's heads, I guess. That, that's about it. But instead, you've got levels and you've got Goombas and you've got Koopa Troopas and things that are really weak and then things that are really strong. You got the, you know, Boomerang Brothers or whatever else, right? You know, all these different enemies with all these different abilities and your job it's almost like a puzzle of how do I beat this enemy and how do I move through the level to get through there. AI war campaigns are a little bit inspired by that because you've got a whole galaxy and you're not going to go through the whole galaxy. You're going to have to use some smarts to figure out where in the galaxy you want to go, what is important to you to get strong enough so that you can beat the, the AI. And um, the AI similarly is a little bit handicapped so it's not ridiculous where it's not allowed to just send all 10,000 ships at you because <laughs> obviously you'd be dead you know two minutes into the game if it just did that so the premise is that you are not worthy of the AI's notice it doesn't give a flip about you you have already lost the humanity is basically dead you're all that's left the AI is busy doing something else and uh, so you're just kind of skulking around the corners of its galaxy that it controls and you're being very much a guerrilla fighter and you're moving through and you're uh, taking over bits and pieces and as you do so there's an indicator in the game called AI progress and that number goes up and that is the AI's estimation of you. And the more that you do to piss it off the more it gets pissed off and will start smacking you around harder and uh, so you really have to remain a gorilla, and every every everywhere you go, you have to decide: is this worth what I'm going to get? You don't want to attract the eye of Sauron, right? Exactly. And so you're like, well, I you can take this. Wow, what an easy target! But is is an easy target worthwhile to take for the amount of ire I'm going to get from the AI for doing it? And usually. No, you want to take the targets that are valuable, whether they're easy or not, and deciding what's valuable and what your strategy is and how you're going to progress through the galaxy. And do you capture for material or do you capture for uh, position or, you know, what's your mix of all that sort of thing? Uh, that That's where the strategy comes from. And um, the AI... Uh, that's at the macro level. The AI is very... That's, that's what we mean by... Uh, asymmetrical the AI is big you are small okay. uh, on a on a local level in an individual battle okay so the AI has noticed you there's some number of AI ships that are fighting you and you're doing something to respond to that uh, that AI is what I think gets a lot of uh, positive notice as well because that has taken uh, emergent techniques and some other unusual techniques for RTS AI and um, that, uh, it, you know, it retreats strategically and, you know, does a lot of, it, it divides its forces and does a lot of things that players go, whoa, <laughs> that really just happened to me, you know, or, you know, they'll, just when you think you're about to win, the AI slips some stuff around you and you actually lose, or, you know, things like that. And players are just like, whoa. And, you know, so mm -hmm. 
the, it's traditional for players that are new to AI War, if they're playing on a reasonable difficulty level, to lose a lot for months before they ever win. And they have blast while they're doing it. I've get been getting so many of those this week after a big Steam sale recently where they're like, oh, you know, I've, gotten, I've lost five games already and it's awesome. Next one, I'm going to get them. You know? <laughs> and that's great. That's really rewarding to me. So. I think the best games are where you feel that sense of satisfaction, like it was a, a good challenge and it wasn't like you just waltzed up to the boss and beat him on the first try. I mean, maybe the tenth reload of that game is when you finally figured out the strategy or used that particular power that you needed, you know. I, exactly. I, I like that. Exactly. Eric, let's move to you for a bit. I understand you're a writer for DIY Gamer and Gaming Dead on the side. What sort of articles do you cover, and has it changed your perspective now that you're a game developer as well as a journalist? Um, yeah, I guess I'll take the first questions. Um, I for Gaming Dead, it's more of a it's ma it's it's mainstream entity, but we're also with a sort of a macabre kind of feel to it. Um, we focus mostly on the weird, the the undead, the zombies, the 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 limbos, all those kind of weird games out there that um, we think. Have that kind of uh, uh, you know death feel to it, or or, or sort of uh, other feel of it. We're not, I don't think we're really gothy or anything like that. But we do have you know we just we go for that sort of uh, that that welcome to the you know un undead Zombie apocalypse <laughs> undead feeling of uh, gaming. And um, a DIY gamer is, is is much different. It's it's sort of this um, kind of growing. I feel like it's it's really uh, found a niche sort of where it is, but it's still growing, I think, in a lot of ways because we're coming up with all these new ideas, which is just always focused on indie games and the developers who make them. Um, for that for the, for that site, I write um, news posts, interviews, reviews, previews, basically anything you could think of that we can get exposure for indies and, and um, along those lines. Uh, recently, I did a mini review of the new content for Cthulhu Saves the World. Before that, I did an interview with them. Um, Paul from uh, Mode 7 Games for Frozen Synapse. That's a fantastic game, by the way, if you guys are looking for another fun kind of tactical game to play. Definitely. Um, I would definitely suggest that. And uh, and just, you know, um, that's the, so the big thing from moving over from um, those sites to uh, development is basically my growth in connections, which has been fantastic. I can get interviews now a lot easier because I'm not just media, which is wonderful because when you're media, a lot of times people will ignore you. So I, I understand. Yep. So I, <laughs> so it's nice to have, um, you know, an, uh, a name behind uh, my title as, as opposed to just um, journalist or, or media and, and they take a little more credence with that. I mean, that's not to say that that's the best thing about it, but I have noticed that I, um, I'm having a lot more in-depth conversations um, and the interviews are um, better because of that. So that's a huge, that's a huge difference for me. I've checked out Mammoth Manor and I'm not quite sure what to say about that, the videos. <laughs> Can you share more, more uh, about that? Uh, yeah, we're just kind of, uh, I mean, this, this started back in college. It's just been um, something we've been doing off and on since then. I mean, originally we were all uh, film and theater majors. Um, so we've always been kind of guys who loved being in front of the camera, being on stage. Um, and we're also, we're also all, um, everybody on the Mammoth Matter team have done um, improv comedy in some way. And that's a, that's a huge, and we still do a lot of, most, most of us still do that. And that's, so that's a huge thing for us is, is comedy and making people laugh. Um, and so 
the idea with Mammoth Manor is simply if someone out of the five of us, we, we actually are down to, I think, three right now, and we're um, building back up as we make a push towards our full first full web series called Blokes, which I'll tell you about if you ever want to hear about it. Um, but um, the little videos you see on the, on the, on the um, website right now are basically if someone has an idea about a sketch, we write it down and we shoot it. And even if it sounds ridiculous, we probably still shoot it. So um, that's kind of the idea. Um, we've gotten... We've gotten a lot of followers that way, actually. A lot of our followers are uh, say you guys are really weird. You take big risks and weird comedy and, and you have a weird sense of humor, and I like it. And um, Although, to be honest, our, our biggest um, hit-getters are definitely the ones that say uh, Zelda on them, which is natural, and it's, it's natural in the YouTube uh, form. However, I do think there are, there are most, our highest produced and best videos available. So if you guys have a chance, check out the Reality of Zelda videos, especially our last one, which um, I think is the, is the most quality. And we got the most exposure on that one. So you do ones on cats if you want to really capture YouTube, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, you just, I mean, I'm telling you, if you wanted to, to dominate YouTube, you just make videos about keywords and you could, you, it doesn't even matter what your content is. You would get tons of hits. So that's kind of depressing that if you make something original on YouTube, you have less of a chance to get exposure than if you do something that everybody on the internet already likes, you know, and already is interested in and stuff. So that's, that's sort of depressing in that own right. Like if I make a terrible video and put, uh, I don't know, yes. Minecraft on it or something like that. It's going to get a ton of hits. And if I make it a really original thing with my own title, then I really am going to have to market it out and push it and stuff onto, the, onto that space um, and, and hopefully get the exposure that I need to get it to the next level. So I always thought that was, that was always like one of the depressing truths of YouTube is that, you know, if you're original, you have less of a chance to be popular. Very true. Uh, I was trying to find videos with you in it, and I kept finding Kevin, but I couldn't tell which ones had you and which ones didn't have you. Are you acting in that? Are you writing? What, what is your role in yeah. that? Um, I do everything pretty much. Uh, I, I write a lot of it. Um, and um, I also act in a lot of it. Although uh, my, my, I've actually physically appearance wise have changed a little bit. So some of my older videos, I, I have longer hair and about 50 pounds up. So I don't know if you saw someone who maybe looked like me a little bit, but was someone <laughs> who looked like he may have ate me. Uh, that would be <laughs> to me. I'm not, I, I'm like, I'm like I'm literally you know like 150 pounds now, and I was about 210 when I was doing some of those videos. So I probably look a lot different. But um, video game couch—that's Kevin and myself. We act in it, we act it, and we direct it. That's our first um, web series. We have eight episodes, or I think maybe 10 episodes of that. Very short, one sort of like one joke kind of kind of things. And then the other um, one we're working on going forward here is um, Blokes, which is about. Um, a couple of Englishmen that come to America to make it big, although they don't know exactly what they mean by that. And then it's the the meta is, of it is that it's written by two American Americans who have no sense of England other than the stereotypes that they've been delivered. Uh, okay. <laughs> so uh, we've got a great we, we're in, we're in we're in pre-production for that. We hope to shoot next month, and um, it's been a great response. We have eight episodes, eleven minutes each, kind of filling that Adult Swim sort of time slot of 15 minutes and you can always put the episodes back to back and get the half hour out of it. I really have high hopes for it. Um, it's, I think it's very funny and I think it's got a lot of potential. So um, I'll be, you know, hopefully pushing that forward and um, later this fall. Excellent. I, I think I kind of live a series like that every day when I talk to my friends on Skype, one of which is from Australia. And all we really do is say, have you been to the Outback and make jokes about <laughs> Crocodile Dundee? <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah but the funny is in the absolute ignorance of it all. Absolutely. Yep. So that's the idea. <laughs> uh, 
In AI Wars, you said you wanted to create a game that made you feel like Ender Wigan uh, from Ender's Game. Tell us about the inspiration and feel you were going for for your second game to Dallas, which is a puzzle brain teaser game. Um, well, you got to remember also with that one, that was an enormously collaborative effort. So that was uh, not, I was the producer on that one and uh, main, the lead programmer on that one, but, uh, you know, it's only an assistant designer of Lars's core idea there. So that was something that, you know, we're always, a lot of us that worked on that game are always a little bit surprised when we look back just how much the ideas came from every, everybody, you know. Um, so I'm not really sure that there was one core uh, place any of that came from. You know, we started out with something that was uh, we called streams. We had a mechanic first uh, that, La that Lars brought. And actually he brought a somewhat related mechanic that was kind of water related, but it was a top-down thing. And it was kind of like water ripples instead. And I prototyped that. And it turned out it wasn't actually any fun, which is common with early things. So Lars and I were like, hmm, well, how do we make this fun while kind of keeping the essence of the idea? And we, we did a lot of, well, I think we did six prototypes in the one summer there. And the sixth one was actually fun and was already starting to like addict our wives and girlfriends and stuff. And so we we're, uh, you know, wives for those of us that had them, girlfriends for ones that didn't, not, not, <laughs> not additions. I think I would clarify like Eric, you know. The, uh, the, uh, the pimp world of indie gaming, yeah, like, <laughs> yes. totally. Wow. <laughs> right. Um, but anyhow, so, you know, they were already starting to addict, uh, you know, various people that played it, so they're like, all right, well, we're on to something, and then that kind of got put on ice for a while because uh, we were, you know, really focused on AI War 2.0 and then the Zenith Remnant and stuff. And then after that was done, it's like, okay, we're ready to return to this idea, which we called feedback at that time, kind of like a feedback loop. And um, at that point then, you know, it was based on streams rather than ripples. And we wound up changing the name to Tidalis to go with kind of the water theme without it being kind of technical sounding like feedback, feedback loop, you know. And... Um, so then we started trying to think of themes. We went with like, you know, sci-fi we started out with. And, you know, I was writing some really kind of dark stuff for the story. And it was kind of depressing. It didn't really fit with it. And I knew that I wanted kind of a, a lighter look to the art than what we did with AI War. Because I wanted to kind of court the casual crowd. And uh, that, you know, that impulse, which was probably a mistake, uh, came from, from me primarily. Uh, Phil on the art did a tremendous job with it um and i think that in some respects we were kind of inspired by tetris attack on the original nintendo which that, that. oh yeah that was definitely the puzzle game that was my favorite growing up um and lars really liked it as well although he's a fanatic about puzzle games and has played like every other i think i think wetris and some other various obscure ones are more his favorites but um yeah so we then were just kind of in search of a, th a story and a theme that would go with it. And we decided we wanted it to be funny. And, uh, you know, Phil came up with these goofy characters that, that are in there, not with names, but just with the drawings of them. Because he's like, hey, Chris, I've been sketching these sort of characters on the side anyway. And wouldn't these work great with Tidalis? He'd had two at that point. And like, great, you know, let's do seven of them. And uh, so he did those and, you know, without any... In particular direction he just did whatever he thought would be funny and uh <clears throat> so then we all had a big round of like trying to name them and coming up with you know very funny names for them that would be fitting as well and 
um, then you know Pablo did most of the voices for them except his uh, girlfriend now wife did the voice of Crolata um, which she also did some voice work for AI War 2 actually and um, <clears throat> you know so he added that and then uh, my wife and I, I, I was just really struggling with trying to write this story because I don't write light or funny very well. I mean, I I like to think that I'm, you know, funny to talk to, but it's all like kind of playing off of other people and I just can't write it that way. I've never been good at that. So, uh, you know, my wife and I were going on lots of walks and stuff. Uh, she was pregnant at the time. And so uh, we were, uh, you know, going on lots of walks and we would just talk about the story, talk about the story. It was like, you know, finally I was like, why don't you write it <laughs> and I will consult with you on that. So she wound up writing the whole thing and, and put a whole lot of effort into that. And it came out really funny, I think. Uh, a lot of people just get a little bit of ways through it and don't really get to the see how funny it, it is because it's a long game. And so the story gets stretched out along the whole thing. There's like 115 levels. Um but those that have finished it have thought it was really funny, uh, which has been really rewarding for both. And uh, so, I mean, that's kind of what I mean when it's a collaborative process. We started with a mechanic, and then we just it just grew, and everybody had so much input. Uh, Keith was added to the project late on that, and uh, he still had a ton of of input on it and we all designed various special blocks and various game modes. There's like 20 game modes and you know, all of us came up with various ones. Lars was the keeper of the keys with the core game mechanics, and everything revolved around that and his uh, refinement for that sort of thing. But we all had a ton of influence on the rest of it. Let's move to A Valley Without Wind, an action-adventure game for the PC and Mac. I was kind of baffled by the title of that for a while until I read your post about being in the post-Ice Age civilization of Inveron and how you must battle the environment, monsters, and tyrants with the help of the Alari, and that you're trying to heal the world and build a home free from fear and death, and that, that right there would be the valley without wind. So that made sense when I read that post, and I was, I was glad that you made that. It was very informative. <laughs> I get so many jokes on... If and no offense to anybody on YouTube, but it seems like every week, instead of it being like first post or whatever, the thing is, if there's not any wind in the valley, why are the trees moving? <laughs> <laughs> and that's the joke again on every YouTube video that we do. <laughs> and it's like, it's because you're searching for, yeah, anyway. Right. It's, it, it's, yeah, it's a pain. It's a pain we share, Chris. It is. <laughs> Good. It's a, it's a fairly simple explanation back to them, which is the valley without wind is the goal of the game, not the right. current right. situation of your of your of your of right. the current state of affairs. So, right, and that's actually there's actually multiple meanings to it, which I won't actually say what the other meanings are because Keith would shoot me. But uh, there's uh, there's some other things that that Keith came up with that I thought were very clever that are other meanings for what the Valley Without Wind represents and is in the game. And, you know, the, the intro story about the, uh, about the game makes it clear that there's this one interpretation of, well, it's the, you know, safe area. And there are really terrible windstorms that every four moves on the world map, you get lost in a blizzard or a snowstorm or a sandstorm or, you know, rainstorm, or whatever. And the monsters are pumped up during that and you've got to get out of there and that sort of thing. So you build these you know, networks of wind shelters and stuff. So the wind is very much a central feature of the game. And uh, 
has a lot of impact on the world and the characters and why they don't travel very much except for a few of them and things like that. Yeah, gamers looking for a game without wind need to go elsewhere, I think. <laughs> I, 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 hate, I hate to shove people away. I hate to shove people away. There are an awful lot of trees in that game, it seems to me. Uh, yeah. There's something about it, though. I mean, the art the art in the game is very realistic and, and, and such like that, but there's something about the art that kind of reminds me of those Japanese sort of cherry blossom paintings because there's shadows that kind of run, you know, at an angle from every tree, and it just, it has this sort of painting-esque look to it when I see the, when I see the YouTube videos. I don't know. I'll have to wait for the beta. Well, thanks. That's, uh... I've been doing all the art on this one, so that's I appreciate uh, that. Uh, which a lot of it is commodity art that I've been uh, procuring from various places, and then texturing and lighting and modeling, or uh, and uh, you know rendering out and then post processing and all that sort of thing. But I'm doing all the art production on it anyhow. But uh, nice. the uh, the shadows actually got ditched with the uh, switch to the side view because um, it doesn't work there. But uh, I think it brings out that painterly look more so actually with the side view you can watch it in 1080p it looks you can really tell more there you can see the brush strokes and stuff i actually like the side view which is a pretty major change that you guys have recently posted about um for me i'm playing Lara croft guardians of light right now and that's kind of the three quarters view which it used to be uh before you change to the side view, and it actually makes me motion sick. The oh side, man! Yeah, the wow. side view kind of reminds me of like the classic Castlevania days. It makes me feel happy. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks. Yeah, I mean, I love Castlevania and Metroid and all those that whole yes. genre. I was always been real into those. Um, you know, and and you know, we got, I would say, seventy percent ish positive feedback on the switch to to the side view, and you know, predictably. Uh, you show some people one thing and they're expecting that and then you switch it and they're going to be unhappy about it. And I don't begrudge them that or anything. We knew that was going to happen when we made the shift. So, you know, 30% negativity. But the the top-down view that we'd been using really caught a lot of flack on the art just because we did a HD kind of scale version of that SNES, uh, you know, Super Nintendo style of... Uh, faux perspective which is typically pixel art and so you get like uh, retro city rampage or you know whatever mm -hmm. things like that those all use that same perspective for whatever reason in pixel art people are like all right you know that's, that's the pixel art perspective but when you do it using actual 3d models that they're then rendered to 2d and and used in that same perspective it doesn't go over well with about half the people. They were just, oh, it makes my eyes bleed. Oh, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> you know, a lot of real negative comments on it every time. We kept improving and improving and improving it, you know, and adding the shadows and getting that more and more painterly look and a little more and more stylized. And, you know, we got more and more people that were happy with it, but it still wasn't really doing it for a lot of people. And most of all, I just wasn't fully proud of it. I just couldn't look at it and say, that is definitely exactly the way I want it to be, you know. And so mm -hmm. the switch to side view really just brought everything together. And it didn't overall change the game that much in terms of what the game is about and how the world is built and all that sort of thing. It's almost shocking how little it changed all of that. But uh, yeah, yeah. You know. <laughs> to go off that, to go off that, Chris. I mean, we. I think one of our biggest um, complaints that we've gotten since we, the release is how much this is going to change the game, which is great because they. 
I don't think a whole lot of people understand that it doesn't change a whole lot of things at all. So, um, uh, again, with all the, with everything pre-beta, all we can do is just try to answer the questions as best as we can. But I, you know, look, we're really looking forward to getting the game actually into people's hands once we reach beta, and and have them, you know, give that feedback once they actually play the game. Because right now they're just looking at it and watching it, and and you know, I think you can only give a certain amount of legitimate feedback in that situation. So um, it's, it's, it's definitely like, we're definitely looking forward to getting into that August period. It's just a good that, sign that people are at least talking and obviously attached to it as it is at this point that they're going to get upset and say, you changed my game. We've definitely right. seen it. We've definitely seen a great interest in it. I mean, we're, we're happy that a lot of people are, are, you know, already kind of taking it to heart that we're making changes like this and, and, and things like that at this process. Um, so yeah, we're just sort of moving along and, and like Chris pointed out when we made the change, the game all of a sudden just sort of worked um there's a lot more the fun factor arrived in a lot of ways for us as 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 we were developing it and things like that so um we just we just uh, like i said can't wait to get um through this next uh, couple month push here and it was you know it, it's really um surprising how much this particular game really resonates with people uh just we've had more interest in this than anything else we've ever done i mean i didn't publicize ai war at all until it was done so I have no idea how people would have reacted to that, but I know that when, you know, and I was an unknown developer starting out too. So, I mean, that had a slow build and then it's been just building every year since then. Um, but, you know, with Tide Alice, we had, eh, you know, some interest a little bit, you know, it sounds kind of interesting. You're making it. So, okay, I'll give it a shot, you know, but we didn't have a, you know, just this intense interest of people following us about. And we didn't, handle the PR of it very well either in terms of getting a lot of word out there in advance of Ted Alice. But, uh, you know, with this one, it's just been just lots and lots of interest. And uh, that's that's been really gratifying to see. And I think just the idea of an infinite procedural world that you can go adventuring in just really is kind of a core gamer wish. I mean, that's why I it is for me, <laughs> mm -hmm. so I think yeah. it's tapped into people well. <laughs> yeah, Chris, yeah, Chris and I touch on the fact that this is our first game that it won't be sort of uh, in its own niche. I mean, it's 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 really for it. Really, we think it will fit with the core PC audience as as a whole, as opposed to uh, Titleist, which is um, kind of puzzle, obviously, and AI War, which is you know very very in depth strategy and um, and 4x. So. I have to say I'm very excited about this game because I'm not a real RTS player. I mean, I, I have AI War and I've kind of gone in it a little bit, but it's not really my genre. Let's just say that. And <laughs> you know, I'm, I really like the concept of this game and I've been watching the YouTube videos and things and I'm anxious to try the beta. So it might be a good time for us to talk about immutable design here. Um, could you guys give us an explanation of that, which I feel is kind of an interesting idea and one I use when I sculpt, but I never really thought to hear it applied to a game before. Sure. Um, well, my, the way that I design games is really fluid sort of thing. And the, you know, you have that, you mentioned sculpting, right? And so the, there's the old joke about sculpting, you know, how do you sculpt an elephant? Well, you just start chipping away everything that doesn't look like an elephant. And, <laughs> You're done, right? And, you know, it's funny, but it's extra funny because it's also kind of true. And I think somebody in, like, ancient Rome made that joke, and that's why it's still around. And with game design, I don't know about sculpting. I don't sculpt. But, I mean, I know that was true with, like, whittling. But, <laughs> uh, you know, but uh, with game design, 
I know that I have some specific course something I'm trying to do. With AI War, I want to feel like Ender Wigan. I want to be able to play with my dad, my uncle, my uncle's colleague together cooperatively. I want to have an AI that feels interesting and complex in which uh, we're not done with as soon as we know how to play the game properly. And a few other things like that, they're just kind of these core drives. It's like, okay, that is what I want. That could describe any number of possible games. There's 10 bajillion ways to make something that describes that, those four concepts or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. And so those are the immutable design goals. I will change anything else that I have to change about the game if it will help me better achieve those four goals. And um, that's a really unusual way to develop games, I think. But part of it goes to the fact that if I'm sitting down uh, day one, I've got this great idea for a game. It's going to be AI war. It's going to have AI and it's going to be awesome and whatever. That, uh, you know, that, that idea is only so great. I mean, people get all excited about their first ideas, but the reality of it is to make a game that's actually very innovative, you don't need one new idea. You need a you know a hat full of them. You need at least two big new ideas. You need multiple. Um, and so you're not going to come up with all those on day one, and you're not going to know how they fit together. Do these even fit together? You know, Lars had some great ideas going with his first idea for uh, feedback, which later became Tight Alice, but it was not fun. That game was no fun. It was way too hard, and the stuff just didn't feel very satisfying to do. But then when you start tweaking around with it in a prototype phase, you know, five prototypes later, the genesis of his idea is still there, plus a bunch of other ideas, and suddenly it's wicked fun. And, and that is something we never would have thought of just off the cuff day one. We had to go through that prototype process and that evolution. Uh, same sort of thing is true with A Valley Without Wind. I wouldn't have necessarily thought to make an adventure game from the side view. There aren't very many adventure games that are made from the side view. I mean, there's the Metroidvania genre, but that's not really what I would think of when I think of adventure and what I was trying to do with this game. Mm -hmm. So that's not where I would have started, but after a certain number of months, it became obvious that's where it should go, and I'm really glad it did go that way. And so you get this, okay, here's this new idea that gets added to the pot of existing ideas, and, you know, the whole thing gets strengthened by it. And, um, you know, Valley by that Wind in general has been that way. Uh, various of us started talking about it for a good while, and then Keith and I were talking about it intensively for like six months off, you know, off and on. We had like ridiculous number of emails about it. And then we're like, okay, it's time to go. And then it still kept changing so much after we actually started developing it. So, uh, <clears throat> you know, we've had our immutable design goals from the start with every game. And then it's all chipping away that everything that doesn't look like them exactly and swapping in new pieces. Does this fit better? Does this fit better? Oh, that fits better, you know. And you wind up with something that's. Uh, I mean, I think that's the only way to innovate. You can't just say, Eureka, I know how to make the atom bomb. Here's the whole schematic for it, day one. Hmm. You know what I mean? That does not happen. You start thinking about quantum physics, and then you get a bunch of people doing a bunch of math and seeing what makes sense. And, you know, 20 years later, you've got the atom bomb. 
but uh-huh. maybe that's a bad example, but you know, <laughs> I don't want to be, you know, <laughs> that guy. I think that's true though. I, you can't really ever be afraid to take that step when you're doing something you know, artistic like this and hold back because you're afraid. I mean, you have to do that. And there's a certain point where I think every person who's creating something knows, yes, this is this is it. It's done. It's right. And you shouldn't stop until you get to that point where you feel like it feels finished to you. So whatever you have to do, you know, to make it work like that. Exactly. Exactly. For uh, A Valley Without Wind, I know the, the kind of goal is to heal the world, I guess you could say, but what is your, your feel that you're going for? When, when you're talking about AI Wars, you're saying you want to feel like Ender. Is there some sort of a sort of more of an elusive thing that you're going for with that as well? Yeah, there's, um, there's this idea that I've had for a number of years. I originally started out with kind of some horror elements in A Valley Without Wind because that was something that to me in my mind at the time was tied to this, but the horror elements have left and the, the idea is still there though. And Zelda is one example anyhow. You've got there's this time when you're in the swamp and you're underpowered and you're low on hearts or whatever, and it's just you versus whatever's in that swamp and you never know if it's your first time there, if there's gonna be something that jumps out of the water and gets you or whatever. I felt that even more strongly with Silent Hill two in particular. Oh. You've got you've got like I think well you've got nothing for that first walk into the Silent Hill, right? You're just hearing the most god awful noises out of the trees and and hear the chainsaw start start up and all that sort of thing. And then eventually you find that plank and that's like the beginning of your power suddenly you've got a plank with a nail in it and there's a thing that comes over and you can beat it up with that plank yeah yuck and then step on it right and then suddenly there's just stuff everywhere and you're really in it then because there's just monsters everywhere and it's you and a stupid plank and your (laughs) guy hits really slow and he turns really slow and it's like he's you know He's just very incompetent feeling it, wielding this plank or even just walking around. It's like he's a survival, <laughs> he's a survival horror controls or something. You exactly. Know? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's perfect. You wouldn't do that game any other way. That is how it needs to control. Um, you know, and as you progress, it's like this is the, you know, the character is taking some power in this world of horror. And that's kind of the concept, I guess. And there's, it's not even about necessarily horror. I mean, certainly Zelda's not horror, um, but that's how I'd kind of conceptualized it just because Silent Hill 2 was so powerful to me and that was such a big part of that game. Um, but in A Valley Without Wind, you start out with very little. You start out with a, just a couple of little spells and some wooden platforms and not much. And you need to go out and gather what you need. You need to craft what you're going to use all the various spells and scrolls and potions and whatever else that you're doing you need to help whoever you want to help if you want to choose to help rebuild towns or defeat overlords or whatever if you want to beat an overlord you've got a lot of improving to do and you know uh adventuring to you know lead you along that path um, and, and that's kind of the core concept. I want to feel like I'm going out into a hostile world that is way bigger than me and uh, that I'm able to start with nothing and, and take some power for me as the player doing that. And that's just a, I don't know, that's something I really like about games. You always start out being terrible at whatever game if it's 
like a new genre. Every you, Mario Brothers is your first game. You play it and you walk right into the first Goomba, right? And then eventually you're like running and bouncing off three Goombas in a row and using that to leap higher. And you're like, haha, I can't believe I ever let a Goomba kill me. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. that is, that's to me kind of somewhat what gaming is all about. And going back to the Atari, man, the controls were always your enemy and every game seemed like it can control differently. And so you'd start out, you know, being so incompetent and like walking into the wall and Seamus and getting electrocuted and, you know, whatever else. It's just, that's a core thing about gaming to me is you start out as the complete noob and you wind up awesome if you want to put in the time. And, uh, you know, I wanted to express that in the actual world of A Valley Without Wind, which I felt like, you know, there's other games that have done that. Somewhat Zelda, definitely Silent Hill. And I've I've always really responded well to that. Good. I like that, too. Underdog, too. Epic is always a good story. The public beta and pre-orders are coming out in August. What do you hope to learn before you release the game in October or November from the beta? I have no idea. That's why we'll learn it then. But, <laughs> but you know, even through the uh, the alpha videos and stuff, which, uh, you know, we had some negativity about the very early ones because people were coming to it out of context and going, oh, what's this? There's no gameplay. It's like, right, it's you walking around in the art. That's all it is so far. I mean, you know, uh, we've had so much positive feedback. I mean, uh, just ideas about this and that doesn't look right visually or this and that, uh, you know, wouldn't that be an interesting game mechanic or, you know, whatever else, like the shadows in the top-down view were a player idea and this ultimately got scrapped in side view, but, you know, uh, it was a good idea when it was top-down and, you know, there's been a, a lot of influences. You know, you, if you're a writer, you need a crit group, right? Um, you, you have to have this group of other writers that you trust that give you feedback. And with the game, you can do that with other game developers that give you feedback, and you can get some really pointed, really excellent feedback. Keith is a good source of that for me. I'm a good source of that for Keith, actually, I would like to think. Um, Lars has always been a really good source of that for me. Um, you know, it's just a collaborative thing, but games are so much more complicated. You know, there's the art, there's the music, there's the gameplay, how it all interacts, and different players approach a game a different way. Players are always figuring out how to bend the rules and do something you never imagined anybody would in their right mind do. And they're like, ha the game's easy when I do this. And you're like, ah, can't believe you <laughs> thought to do that. Now I need to figure out how to fix that so that the game isn't broken for you. And they're like, here, let me, let me tell you, let me uh, help you fix this exploit that I found. You know, they love, uh, at least strategy game players seem to love doing it. Haha, I found this exploit. Here's my suggestion on how to thwart me. <laughs> you know, and that's, that's such a rewarding thing. And you never know what they're going to come up with. And, you know, even with stuff like, say, networking, um, we don't have 16 people to put on a server. You know what I mean? I, there's not a way for us to tell. I don't even know how many people will be able to play this in multiplayer. I'm pretty sure we can probably get 16 just based on general stuff, general other games that we've done and how much bandwidth we you know, think it's going to use on average and blah, blah, blah. But we're not really going to find that out until we start getting a bunch of you know player feedback on, okay, hey, we've had a server with 16. We've had a server with 32, whatever. you know, And that's when we're going to kind of know. Um, cause you know, we don't have 
a hundred testers in house and a hundred artists and, you know, a weekly design session with our staff of 300 where yeah. everybody comes in and yes. comments, whatever, you know? So if we're, if we're going to have feedback, it's going to be from, from customers or, you know, players. Um, so what we do whenever we come up with a beta like that is we say, okay, you can demo this for free because we want to demo from the moment that you can put pre-order money on this because we never want anybody to buy something that they then are like, oh man, I want a refund. I didn't know it was this, you know, uh, we want people to you know, know what it is when they actually buy it, not feel gypped. And, um, with the, and then, you know, for those that want to pre-order it, they can, and they get it at a discount and they get access to the full non-demo version of the beta. And they, typically delight in giving us feedback. There's some players with AI War, I swear, the game to them is seeing what suggestions they can make. And, you know, that's fine. They tend to be good, excellent suggestions from those players, but they spend a lot of time thinking about the game like a game designer. They go in there. To me, that's somewhat the game, too, is I play it. I'm like, hmm, how can I improve this? You know, and, and those, some, there are some players that, that play in that same mindset, which is interesting. So you get all these different personalities and all these different things interacting, and what you wind up with is by the time you hit 1.0, you have, you know, a product that's actually polished and ready to go. And uh, there's no way to get full bug testing and, you know, full testing on all a bunch of different graphics cards and various types of level of processor and all that sort of thing mm -hmm. without having, you know, the players to do it. You know, and that's another reason we do the demo is we think the minimum system requirements are this. We've tested on this. You can go lower if you want to try it and see if it works. And if it does work, please let us know. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's how... You know, if you've got a much older computer than whatever we have on hand to test with, then please let us know so we can update. Uh, how Don't. do you deal with that, though? Because I'm sure not everyone is the epitome of, you know, politeness when they're writing you back and saying, you know, this would be an excellent suggestion, sir, you know. Uh, a lot of crow. Yeah. <laughs> you eat a lot of crow. My blood pressure, the summer that AI War was new on the market, must have just skyrocketed because... You know, it's another reason it's good that this takes place via forum post or email or whatever, because you can eat your original response to you know, <laughs> the emotional response. You don't, <laughs> I, I try and never lash out at, at folks, even if they've lashed out at me. And um, the surprising thing that I've learned is that some of the people that are the rudest turn out it turns out they're being rude because they assumed that you don't care. They're mm -hmm. writing you to vent and they're sorry they brought your thing because whatever. It doesn't support keyboard remapping or whatever, you know, and they are on a German keyboard and they can't hit, you know, Alt-A because A is on the other side of the keyboard. And so that makes it absolutely unusable for them, you know, and, and they hate you now. And so they write to tell you this, and you're like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know, whatever, let's put in some options and, you know, fix this. So then, And then, man, those are the guys, those are the people, guys or women, that become your biggest advocates. I mean, they will just go around to other forums and talk about how awesome you are and how great the game is. And, wow, I love it now that I can actually hit, you know, the equivalent of Alt-A that's, you know, 
works on my German keyboard or, you know, whatever the problem is that they were having. Okay. It just goes back to that general point of, of open development and why we believe in it so, um, you know, so much is, is, is that we don't necessarily work as a crowdsource, but we're as close to development as, as that. I mean, as close as any developer can get to that because of our form participants and because of that back and forth. It, I mean, it, it really feels no, that no matter what stage of the game we're in, we always have extra people on board giving us feedback. And I, I think that's going to just increase, with, especially with the value of that one as we get to beta uh, and beyond, because it, it really does not feel like there's only a few people working on this game at any given point. Um, if you go into our forums and you converse about it, um, because it's just, it, it is so active and um, people are already putting in so much into it. And I think the reason why is, is, as Chris pointed out, is that we are willing to, you know, drop any, we don't, we never really had this in the first place, by the way, this, this sort of arm's length with our customers, but a lot of companies do. And that's why, as Chris points out, a lot of people have the mentality that when they're writing this rant, they don't think they're going to get a response, you know, and they don't, they don't think they're ever going to get anything um, productive back from it. So that's why they're being fairly unproductive themselves by just screaming at us. But I mean, you know, they, you know, they still make their point. We come back with it. And then all of a sudden there's a, there's a relationship built from that, that is, that is so, you can't, you can't underestimate the relationship there. And yet so many companies, indie or otherwise do, uh, mostly mainstream actually. But um, you know what I'm saying? Like that, that's, a, that's, that's a huge company belief that we have going forward is that we have to be very open with our customers and if they say if they want an answer we give it to them that's all and it also comes with not prizing your own ideas over anybody else's i mean and i think some of that comes from security too or uh, you know confidence you know with ai war i was confident that i had made a good game the ai was innovative there were innovative ideas there were some big new things in there that i could call my own I don't need to have ownership of every last iota of that game to feel like I am Mr. Awesome or something. You know what I mean? Uh, it's, it's not a, oh, this is my baby, my thing alone. You know, from, uh, I think, the first week after it came out publicly, you know, there were some players that wrote in with some fairly major feature suggestions that people think of as just being just absolutely central to the game now, like free roaming defender mode. I don't even know how you would play AI War without free roaming defender mode. It's kind of an auto defense mode so you can focus on something else. It's just absolutely central to the game. Not my idea. A player wrote in with that idea and like the first week after it was out. And I was like, who putting that in? He was like, well, okay, well, I have some more then. And those made it in too. <laughs> it was like, you know, I think we've had uh, in the neighborhood of a hundred contributors that were players that came in with ideas to uh, to AI War, and there's been uh, somewhere north of two thousand specific suggestions from players on AI War alone that have been made actually into the game. Uh, we we, awesome. we track those on our you know forums and stuff, and it even has like stats on who's put in the most and that sort of thing. And um, on our Mantis bug tracker and then on our form. So, you know, that's, um, I never would have thought of free roaming defender mode. That guy was freaking clever that, that, that suggested that. And there was a woman uh, a couple of months ago with 
ridiculous skill at R RTS games. And she just took the AI apart. I mean, she absolutely was just dominating the games. She's like, you know, I played this a year ago and it was so easy that I gave up on it. I was like, what? Everybody talks about a good day. And she's like, no, here's what I do. And it's just, you know, I'm winning in like, th you know, three hours each time. And it's supposed to be like 12 or whatever and really a struggle. And it's like, holy cow. And so then she and some of the other ones on the forums and myself and Keith were all going through and like, well, what if we do this? What if we do that? Hmm, does this feel balanced? Blah, blah, blah. And going through this whole cycle. And it took, you know, a month or two. And uh, she and others would play test it. And others took up her strategies. And she was doing, like, some YouTube videos of this is how I do it and stuff like that. And it was just this really interesting thing for a game that had been out, you know, at that point, uh, a year and a half, I guess. Um, for her to suddenly appear with this radically new strategy that was just dominating, that was a real surprise. And it really, a whole bunch of new game mechanics were born out of that that prevent the abuse and make it interesting as a game for her again. And that, uh, you know, enhance it for everybody else more marginally, but, you know, uh, in general as well. And those are the sort of things I can't predict, you know, what all is going to come out of that, but I know we want to go through that process. Mm -hmm. So that's, it's, that's where we go to betas for. Yeah. It's a really, it's a good, it's a fine line between, um, you know, we, we have the confidence in the product, but we don't have an ego towards it. And, and therefore we can take those suggestions and we can decide, you know, if you don't have confidence in your product, then you might just take every suggestion and then your game's going to become terrible, you know, but we have the ability to, to bullet, we have certain beliefs in our game, but at the same time, we know, that we ourselves are not going to be able to to make this thing by ourselves. I mean, make this thing perfect or where we want it to be by ourselves. It's going to be the, a lot of the, it's going to land on the players in a lot of ways and how they react to it because all gamers are different and all gamers see a single game in their own way. Right, and it's also about figuring out, you know, yeah, weeding out the good the good suggestions out of the. We've had maybe four thousand suggestions for AI War that we have not implemented either, not yet, or that is at least a thousand that we're never going to implement. Um, but you know, out of those, you know, another two thousand that we did plus that we did implement. So it's not about doing everything and trying to be everything to all people. It's about trying to augment what augments the core ideas and the people mm -hmm. that have suggestions that make what it is. The game has a soul. And if it makes that soul, you know, it, it feeds that soul then great. If it tries to make the game into something it's not, that's not a suggestion to be accepting or if it's just a bad suggestion, which happens to the best of us, you know, mm -hmm. um, so there, there's that whole, you know, you have to have a fine line and sometimes people get really miffed that you won't take their suggestion. But if you have well-reasoned response, why not? Usually that goes over well, sometimes not, but that's, you know, the cost of inviting people to give their opinion is sometimes they, you can't take it. And they're not happy about that. Where do that's, you go to sign up for the beta? Um, actually, it'll be on our site, um, but it's, it's going to be just one of those things in our store you can... Uh, if you if you want to be in the f full game and have the you know pre-order it, then uh, then you could just pre-order it from our store and, and so if you pre-order it, you'll it. become part of the beta. Exactly. Kind of auto. Ah. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, the way that we do our files for our full version is kind of a shareware type thing. So you buy a license key from us. You, you plug that in and then the demo becomes the full version. So same sort of okay. thing. We put the demo out there publicly of the beta. So if you don't want to spend any money, you're not sure about the game, you just want to poke around at it, 
download the demo. It's right there. You can demo the beta. You can give us feedback on that too. We're not, you know, not picky. We'll take feedback on the demo. Mm -hmm. And if you like it and you want the full game, then uh, you want to pre-order it, then go for it and you get the whole thing versus just the demo. So uh, it's kind of, you know, Will there kinda... be like certain amounts of keys that you have to give out, or is it just pretty much whoever wants to play can play? It's whoever open. Whoever wants to play can play. It's open. <laughs> yep. As, as whoever whoever pre-orders is in, and um, yeah, just just for clarity's sake, once you purchase the game in pre-order or in beta, you have it forever. So um, right. no, there'll be no, you know, you have to purchase this again at an official release or anything like that. I don't even know. I don't even know who does that anymore. But if they do, they're horrible. So. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Will it be on Steam? Um, you know, I haven't talked to them about it yet. Um, I don't have any reason to believe not. Every other one of our games is on Steam. Um, but I tend to not want to take stuff to them until it's in a state that they can play. And I'm like, hey, this is awesome. You you totally want this. You know, so okay. I don't want to give them an opportunity to go, I don't know about this. You know, so. <laughs> we'll, we'll certainly be looking into it, though, if that's, yeah. if that's what you're like, questioning. Yeah, most, most of the time, Most of the time with Steam, they typically don't want to be in on the betas with the stuff that we've done. If if this was suddenly super popular, I imagine that might be different, but uh, usually they come in at 1.0. Usually Gamersgate, you know, like Gamersgate and a few of the others like Impulse have, have made it really clear that they will carry whatever it is we put out and they want it as soon as it's in beta. So, you know, we tend to, probably it'll be a Gamersgate and I assume Impulse from day one of the beta or at least week one of the beta as well. With Steam and Direct to Drive and stuff, you know, mm -hmm. they've they've tended to wait more towards release. But So you go to arkangames.com and that's where you can find the beta? Exactly. Okay, and A-R-C-E-N for the listeners. Okay, we're getting toward the end here. Is there anything you wanted to say that you didn't get to on any of the questions above, either of you? Maybe, but it's been a long time. <laughs> uh, <I laughs> An hour ago, can you remember what we said? Uh, uh, Chris did cover everything, I think, very well when we uh, about Valley Without Wind and AI War and all that stuff, so I think we're um, solid on that. Okay, excellent. Thank you to Chris and Eric. You can read Chris's blog post about gaming at christophermpark.blogspot.com, which I will link on the site, and you can see Eric's postings on DIY Gamer and Gaming Dead, or follow him on Twitter at GameConnoisseur. Please join the beta for Valley Without Wind in August and help them improve the game before launch. As an addendum, Arkin Games has generously given me 15 keys to AI War to be distributed to you, the listeners, as I like. Ten of them are full game versions of AI War Fleet Command, five are for their expansion Zenith Remnant, and five are for Light of the Spire. In the spirit of Arkin Games, who donated all profits from their expansion Children of Ninezol to Child's Play, which is a very worthy charity to give less fortunate children access to games, I will randomly give away the 10 expansion keys to the first 10 people to email me at genesegray at yahoo.com and ask for the one that they want. The remaining 10 full versions of AI War Fleet Command I will give to whoever makes a review, however long, either good or bad, on the iTunes page for the Gray Area Podcast. Send me an email telling me you have done so, and I'll send a key back to you. That way I know that you at least listened. So a big thank you to Arkin for the generosity on these keys. 
I'd like to say thank you to my sponsor, MapHook. If you'd like to support the podcast, please click on their icon at Genesee.com or join the Gray Area Podcast group on MapHook. You can find me on Twitter at Gray Area Podcast or Facebook slash Gray Area Podcast or on iTunes. If you have any gray areas in your relationships or just need a new perspective, please email me your questions at GeneseeGray at Yahoo.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week with a new episode.